The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Lord, we are so grateful to be your people. We're so grateful to have every opportunity that you give to us to gather together and to unite our hearts with one another in worship. We are thankful, Lord, that you make us joyful in Christ. And so we pray that today, that everything that we do would be pleasing unto you. We pray, Lord, that uh, your word would come to us afresh with power and conviction, encouragement and assurance. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would work within each of us to draw us near to you, that we would have sweeter communion with our great God. We pray for your help this morning as we continue to study our confession of faith as we seek to understand more about your church. And we pray for our children that as they are learning your word today, that you continue to work your word into their hearts, that they might love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might hide your word in their hearts, that they might never depart from it. And so we pray, Lord, for your help, because we know that without you, we can do nothing. We need you, we depend on you, and today our great desire is to delight in you. And we pray you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are on chapter 26 of the church. We've bounced around a little bit, so we are coming back to something we've looked at before. So we are gonna be about halfway through this chapter. We're gonna be in paragraph seven, and I'll tell you right now, we're not going to finish this chapter today. This is the longest chapter of our confession, and there's a lot packed in here. So uh, it's gonna take some time to get through, but maybe one or two more uh, classes on this uh, chapter. So you can see uh, what we have looked at before, and if you missed those or want a refresher, you can go online and listen to those. But uh, this morning we'll look at paragraph uh, seven, the authority of the church, eight, the governance of the church, nine, the calling of officers in the church, and 10, if we have time, the duties of pastors. So paragraph seven, the authority of the church. Our confession says, to each of these churches therefore gathered, according to his mind, declared in his word, he has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline, which he has instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. Now, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Reformed or particular Baptist churches compared to other churches within the Reformed tradition is that of our church polity. Now, we, very similar, we would say, nearly identical with Congregationalists, and so the writers of our confession uh, borrowed from the Congregationalists here in, chap in uh, paragraph seven. The Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalist Churches included an appendix to their uh, declaration. It's called, Of the Institution of Churches and the Order Appointed in Them by Jesus Christ. A very succinct and easy to remember title. So like Baptists, 
Congregationalists believe that there is no higher earthly authority in a local church than the local church itself. In other words, each local church is autonomous, and so we don't answer to a synod or a presbytery or a denomination. The Congregationalists confess that besides local churches, quote, there is not instituted by Christ any church more extensive or Catholic, meaning universal, entrusted with power for the administration of his ordinances or the execution of any authority in his name. And so the particular Baptists agreed with this, having already shown in earlier paragraphs that the church holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the authority to bind and loose on the earth. And since that was of greatest importance, all other matters of church polity were subordinate and so should be limited to each local congregation. And so it says, to each of these church therefore gathered, according to his mind declared in his word, he has given all the power and authority. In other words, the confession is saying that a rightly constituted local assembly, that is one that is organized according to the biblical definition of a church, holds all earthly power and authority within itself to govern itself. Specifically, the confession identifies the carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he has instituted for them to observe. So the elements of corporate worship are fixed by the word of God, and that is dealt with in chapter 22 on worship. The circumstances of worship, however, will vary from congregation to congregation and should not be dictated by any but the congregation itself. And when we say the, um, when we are uh, talking about the um, uh, circumstances of worship, what we mean are the various things that we do that uh, aren't directly addressed in the scriptures that we are commanded by God to do in our worship. So it's not things like we should pray and we should preach the word of God and we should baptize and we should observe the Lord's Supper. Those are elements of worship, but the circumstances are things like where will we meet? What time will we meet? How many times on the Lord's day will we meet. Those kinds of things are the circumstances. And there is no authority that dictates those to the local church. Every church must make those decisions for itself and the circumstances will vary from place to place depending on their own circumstances uh, in which they find themselves. Likewise, discipline in the local church is not subject to church courts or higher authorities. It is ultimately determined by the common suffrage of the church congregation under the duly appointed leadership of that church. Now, this isn't to suggest that congregations have the freedom to deviate from what the Lord has revealed in the scriptures. The ultimate head of the church is Christ himself. This paragraph deals with that, or excuse me, this chapter deals with that in previous paragraphs. And he's instituted the commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of the local church's power. So everything the local church does, while the earthly authority for that church is in itself, it is all dictated by what we find in the scriptures. 
So Matthew 18, 17 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13 are the primary New Testament texts dealing with the Lord's commands regarding church discipline. This is a very important part of this. In both instances, the prescribed order of operations is given to the local church and to the members of the church. And this is, an, this is a part of it that is often mistaken or forgotten. That church discipline happens in the church and not just within the, the elders of the church. So if a member of the church is in sin and has refused to listen to the individual they have sinned against or has refused to listen to one or two others who are objective parties to hear both sides of the issues and attempt to try and sort it out, the directive that the Lord Jesus gives us in Matthew 18, 17 is to tell it to the church. And if the sinning party continues to resist the church's calls to repentance, he is to be excommunicated and to be to the church, Jesus says, as a Gentile and a tax collector. So excommunication is the final act of church discipline. Now the Lord does not provide direction for a church um, decision to be appealed to or to be adjudicated by any higher authority. So the local church, in judicial terms, is the Supreme Court uh, in matters of church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there am I among them. And he was saying this in the context of church discipline. In like manner, when a man in the Corinthian church was found to be in sin, the Apostle Paul instructed the church, when you are assembled, that's an important element of that, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In the same manner as Jesus Paul places the responsibility, just as Jesus does, Paul places the responsibility of discipline in the local congregation and likewise offers uh, no uh, means of appeal to adjudicate beyond the church. Now, I will, I say that, I will note, we won't see this today, but in the final uh, paragraphs of this chapter, Uh, It does talk about cooperation between churches and if there are disputes in churches that it is good to call together other trusted uh, like-minded churches to help work through those. But ultimately, it identifies that those churches uh, don't have authority over that local church. It is advisory in nature, but it is not authoritative. The local church itself holds that authority. Another important insight regarding church discipline is that it's carried out by the church and not by its officers. In almost every instance imaginable, we can say the congregation's elders will see that the proper biblical steps of discipline are carried out and communicated to the church. However, Jesus and the Apostle Paul do not instruct the elders to excommunicate unrepentant sinners. It is the responsibility of the entire church. Hence the repeated language of gathering or assembling as the body of Christ uh, to do this. 
A local congregation is led by its elders. They must play the part of Paul, expressing their judgment in the matter, calling upon the church to examine the evidence and decide. But decisions about membership are ultimately determined by the suffrage or the vote of the church. Jonathan Lehman explains it this way. He says, elders have oversight of the body and so maintain the prerogative of leadership. Still, it cannot be denied that whatever one's polity, every Christian, every church member is responsible to redress matters of dispute, participate in the preliminaries of discipline through admonition and rebuke, and defend the apostles' doctrine. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So the church here in this situation in Corinth, they had a lot of issues, but here they presumably had a member who sinned and was unrepentant. And so the church would have applied the, the rules of discipline prescribed by Jesus, and in that context, it reveals that most of the Corinthian believers came together and they agreed to the church's disciplinary actions. And so there was, it seems, a minority within the church perhaps that were more sympathetic to the unrepentant members' case. And so Paul concludes by saying the punishment of the majority is enough. In other words, the majority rules in this situation even though the minority might have opposed the action. And so the implication is that the congregation voted on the matter. It was not a determination made at the sole discretion of the elders. And that is a very important distinction. That is one of the hallmarks of uh, Baptist ecclesiology, that the church is congregational in nature. It is not uh, simply ruled by the leaders appointed by the church. It is led by the officers of the church. And so this paragraph deals with that authority, where it rests. It rests within the congregation itself, and there is no higher authority than the local church. Then we go on to paragraph eight that deals with the governance of the church related to that. It says, a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. So the proper governance of a particular local church is determined by the scriptures according to the mind of Christ. The preliminary assumption of the confession is that the church, to be called a church, is biblically organized and gathered, and it is an assembly that consists of officers and members. Without members, a church is not a church. There is no such thing as a memberless church. At best, it would be a parachurch organization, perhaps, but it bears no heavenly authority. It cannot insist on accountability. 
and it has no basis on which to uh, deal with ecclesiastical issues of discipline like we just talked about. If you don't have members, there's no accountability there. And there's what are you, how are you going to carry out the discipline that we're called to carry out? There's from what are they being excommunicated? A properly organized church also has officers who are appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church. And so the confession implies that a qualified officer has been called and gifted by God and that his calling is recognized by the church. Jim Renahan writes, to use the words of the confession, a church was not complete until it was furnished with officers duly installed. <clears throat> Benjamin Keach, one of the um, writers of our confession, wrote this. He said, a church without a pastor or pastors ordained is very disorderly, and a pastor without a church is impossible. The church had priority over the officers, but was incomplete without them. Ministers could not function without the call and approbation of a specific church. So there may be instances when a church exists without officers for a time. It's possible. By utilizing the language of completely organized, the confession recognizes that not every church will find itself in ideal circumstances at all times, having officers at all times. However, every effort should be made to remedy the deficiency as quickly as possible to prevent the disorderliness that ensues without Christ-ordained leadership structures in place. So, for example, when you have a new church that is being formed, until such a time that it has been constituted and has a membership that can call officers, it should not be considered a church. It is a fellowship, that's what we call it, you can call it whatever, but it's not a church. And it's led not by a man or men called pastor or elder, nor consists of deacons, but rather a man or men who exhibit ministerial gifts and are ideally those who would be considered as potential officers once a church is properly constituted. And so we have a good example of this with our church plant, Bethlehem Baptist Fellowship. We're very intentional to call it that, and once they're constituted, it will be Bethlehem Baptist Church. And so we make that distinction and Bethlehem Baptist Fellowship, um, because it has been planted by our church, ultimately the pastors of those people who are members of Emmanuel Baptist Church are the pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Until such a time that they constitute and then they form their own membership and that membership then calls their officers. Once they're established as a local church, we have no authority over that church. And so the pastors here have no say in who is going to be their officers, uh, how they're going to conduct themselves, what everything is going to look like as they gather together. That is no longer our purview of responsibility. That doesn't mean they can't or won't consult and ask for advice and direction, and we will gladly provide that. But in terms of authority, it will then rest within that local church. And we need to be very careful that we're not 
uh, ever putting ourselves in a situation where anything other than that is implied. Or else we remove the authority structure that has been ordained by Christ. Now, I want to say this as well with regard to starting new churches. The Bible does not support the idea that an individual or a group can decide on their own to plant a new church. It happens all the time. But new churches should be planted by established churches according to the pattern of the New Testament. And we see that particularly in Acts chapter 11. Even in missionary contexts, when there is no local assembly that exists in that area or in that region, the missionary is one who should be sent and commissioned by a local congregation under whose authority he serves. In situations where a planting church sends its members to establish a new work, very much like we did with Bethlehem, those members should remain members of the mother church until such a time as the new church is rightly constituted. And so church planters can either be men who are commissioned by the mother church and sent out as gifted brothers. We have a paragraph on that we're not going to get to today, but they're commissioned and sent out that we recognize in that man he has particular gifts of leadership, the ability to preach, and is one who would be considered presumably among those who will be the members of the church once it is established to be one of their officers. And so a man can be commissioned and sent out by the mother church, or it may be he is an elder or a group of elders from the church who continue to serve under the authority of the mother church. If the church planter maintains his eldership at the sending church, he can rightly be called pastor or elder until such a time as the new church is established and he either returns to the sending church, becomes a member of the new church, or is called and ordained to serve as a pastor of the new congregation. So I know that maybe is a lot to sort of keep in order, uh, but that order is important. It's important that we establish the right uh, the right structure of uh, authority and leadership lest um, we try to step beyond the bounds of what Christ has ordained within his church. Officers of a church are appointed by Christ and the church, uh, the confession says, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and the execution of power or duty which Christ entrusts them with or calls them to to be continued to the end of the world. So the calling of officers is addressed in paragraph 9, the duties of pastors in paragraph 10, so we won't go into all that right now. However, paragraph 8 identifies the general duties of officers and says that they are to administer uh, the ordinances of the church, to exercise authority that is entrusted by Christ being fully necessary until Christ returns. Finally, the paragraph identifies the two offices of the church and identifies them as either bishops or elders and deacons. So <clears throat> what are those offices? The first, again, bishops or elders. Well, the terms we see in the Bible, pastor, shepherd, bishop, elder, overseer, those are the main terms that are used. All of those are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament to describe this one 
office. Now, each of them has a slightly nuanced difference in terms of what is being implied, um, but they all are the same office. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul identifies that the Lord has given pastor teachers or shepherd teachers to his congregation. In Titus 1.5, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The word elder used by Paul is uh, translated from the Greek word presbyteros, meaning presbyter, or more plainly, an elder or minister in a Christian church. This is where the name Presbyterian comes from. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, writing about the same men he referred to as elders or presbyters, Paul writes, for an overseer, as God's shepherd must be above reproach. And so overseer is translated from the Greek word episkopos, which can also mean bishop, which is where the denomination uh, of episcopals comes from. So the New Testament makes no distinction between these titles. These are all the same office. They're all terms referring to pastors or elders, which we most often refer to here in our own congregation. But if you want to call us uh, bishops, you can do that. If you want to call us overseers, you can do that. It's certainly uh, a biblical title. So the office of elder is addressed in greater detail later on in this uh, chapter. So we won't go into that right now. The second office of the church is that of the deacon. Now, the Greek word diakonos means servant or minister, and it's used at least 22 times in the New Testament in these two general ways. The Apostle Paul even describes Jesus as a servant or a, uh, diac- the diakonos to, be, uh, to the circumcised. So it's inappropriate to assume that the commonly used term diakonos in the New Testament when applied to an individual in the New Testament automatically assumes that that individual held ecclesiastical office. Now this is important because this is an issue that comes up particularly when uh, churches are discussing whether or not uh, this office can be held by females. Um, Because there are females in the New Testament who are referred to Uh, by this term, diakonos. Well, once again, it simply means a servant. And so, ideally, everyone in the church, in that sense, is a diakonos. We are all servants of Christ and servants of the church as we serve the church. And so, we can't conclude that simply because this term is used in the New Testament, the person to whom it refers is a deacon in the ecclesiastical office. The office of deacon was established in Acts chapter 6. It says this, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so in these earliest days of the church, unity was being threatened because some of the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Most likely, it was things like food distribution and their living expenses. So the ministry of the apostles... Remember, people were being saved like 3,000 at a time. Their ministry was growing rapidly. And they could no longer look after the physical needs uh, of the believers. And so the primary task that they had was prayer and preaching and teaching, which included for them significant travel obligations and regular visits to the churches that were being established, correspondence with various churches, the training and appointment of elders in those churches. And so it was determined that the church would appoint men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and those men were to tend to the physical needs of the church. And this office later was called deacons. Now, since the word diakonos refers to the office, it generally uh, means uh, its general meaning provides insight into the role of that office. A deacon, as an officer of the church, has a primary responsibility to lead through service and care for the practical needs of the church, freeing up the pastors or bishops or elders or overseers or whatever you want to say, uh, to free them up to minister the word of God. So deacons are not a separate autonomous body of officials that are disconnected from the elders. They are, they are operating under the delegated authority of the elders of the church. You notice the apostles called them together to call and appoint these men. In the same way that we uh, as elders might call on the members of the church to identify men in the congregation um, through your advisory ballots who you might see to be potential candidates for this office. It's the same sort of thing. And so it's important, and this is important because uh, many, and dare I say most, Baptist churches get this wrong. Deacons are not vice shepherds nor should they ever be expected to teach or to provide spiritual oversight of the church. That's not to say that some of them aren't gifted and that they can't be appropriately used to do so, but that's not their job. That's not why they were appointed. The deacon's primary role includes relief for the sick and the poor, managing the church's assets, ensuring the circumstances of worship are in place and working properly. So like today, you'll see as soon as we're done here, the deacons will come and set everything up for the Lord's Supper today, providing oversight in other areas of service within the church. So like when we come together for a work day, um, I hardly know when those days are, but the deacons are all on top of it. They're ordering things, they're making sure we know what jobs need to be done, all of those sorts of things, because that's part of their responsibility, to care for the church and its assets and to oversee that it is done well. Now, very few New Testament passages refer to the office of the diaconate. 
And so within the general parameters of the office, being that of service, each local church has significant latitude in employing the office according to its unique needs. Every congregation is going to be different in its circumstances. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, the Apostle Paul provides the qualifications for this office. And uh, you'll notice, as you look at these, compared to the qualifications he lists out for elders or overseers, uh, they are almost identical other than that the office of overseer must be one who is uh, able to teach. That's the significant difference. So once again, as I said before, this office of deacon is not one of a requirement to be able to or to ever teach. There's no context in which that is a requirement for that office. And so Paul writes, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Um, It says, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. Uh, that, That verse right there tells you that deacons are not females. The Maybe... In 2024, people can make that argument that uh, uh, a female can be the husband of one wife, but um, historically speaking, it's not possible. Managing their children in their own households well for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so, in other words, what Paul is saying is deacons are faithful, godly, mature Christian men who are trustworthy servant-hearted leaders who set an example worthy of their calling for others in the church to follow. That's, that's an important distinction. And so I know for me, if I'm looking at men to consider for the office of diaconate, I want to see men who are already doing the things that you would hope to see deacons do within the church in terms of their service. They're servant-hearted, and that is, uh, that is their natural inclination. When there's a need, they rise to the occasion and take care of it without having to be directed to do so. All right, so that is the officer's um, in paragraph eight. Paragraph nine then deals with the calling of these officers in the church. It says, the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein, and of a deacon that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. Now, the calling of officers for a church is one of the most important tasks of the church. The Bible is a compendium of warnings to God's people about their leaders. If a man is unqualified to fulfill his office, much damage can be done to the body of Christ. Charles Spurgeon asked this, 
how may a young man know whether he is called or not? That is a weighty inquiry, and I desire to treat it most solemnly. Oh, for divine guidance in so doing, that hundreds have missed their way and stumbled against a pulpit in sorrowfully evident from the fruitless ministries and decaying churches which surround us. It is a fearful calamity to a man to miss his calling, and to the church upon whom he imposes himself, his mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind. Now, a man may be genuine, he may be godly, but he can do great damage to a church if he's not called to his office. Paragraph 9 addresses, first, the calling of elders, and second, the calling of deacons, identifying two aspects of a man's fitness for his office. The first is that of divine calling. This paragraph begins by recognizing that before any considerations are made, a man is called into the ministry according to, quote, the way appointed by Christ. And that is determined by whether or not he is fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit. So, thanks be to God that Christ has not left his church to determine the criteria to evaluate a man for the ministry to our own. He's appointed specific qualifications. A man may desire to be in ministry, but if he doesn't have the proper gifts, he's not called. Likewise, a man may be supremely gifted, but he's not not called without a genuine desire to utilize those gifts within the ministry. So the divine calling of a man is determined by this twofold basis of desire and gifting. Spurgeon writes this about desire. He says, the first sign of the heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In order to to a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling to others what God has done to our own souls. The Apostle Paul highlights this desire. This is the first qualification for a man's fitness for the office. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If a man aspires or desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, Spurgeon went on to say, and he, in this, he's lecturing his students at the pastor's college at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And if you've never read Spurgeon's lectures to his students, it's a good reading. It's very entertaining. Uh, but he, he said this to them. He said, if any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness, for a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit but that for which his inmost soul pants. If, on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend on it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the signs of this apostleship. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. 
The word of God must be onto us as fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it, shall be unable to bear the self-denials incident to it, and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. I speak of self-denials, and well I may, for the true pastor's work is full of them, and without a love to his calling, he will soon succumb and either leave the drudgery or move on in discontent, burdened with a monotony as tiresome as that of a blind horse in a mill. So the point being, and I fully agree, that men must never approach pastoral ministry with the attitude that it is a job that they're going to try for a time to see if it's a good fit. But they must instead determine through prayerful examination in his heart that there is nothing else in the world that would satisfy the longings of his soul like preaching the gospel and serving the people of God. He cannot enter the office with a desire for personal gain or notoriety. The self-denial and rigorous efforts required of a minister of the gospel are only possible through a divine calling. And so while a man will rightly see himself as unworthy of the task, he also knows that he has an undeniable desire in his heart that will not be satisfied unless he preaches the gospel. And so this is, uh, this is very important and this is very true. I know a lot of people think pastors only work on Sundays, maybe Saturday night to get ready for Sunday, but it requires a tremendous amount of self-denial and rigorous effort. The other part of divine calling is gifting. A man may desire the office of overseer, but he must also be fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul identifies that a qualified man is able to teach. Now, academic credentials and effective communication are useful But those in and of themselves are insufficient factors for determining a man's fitness for the pastoral office. Just because a man has graduated from seminary and he might be able to preach a good sermon doesn't mean he's necessarily fitted for the office. Furthermore, being able to teach extends well beyond a man's efforts in the pulpit. It includes his abilities to provide biblical counsel, to admonish others in sin, to administrate and communicate effectively, and to administer the public means of grace. So a man may be able to preach a good sermon, but if he doesn't have the fortitude to sit in front of someone and call them to repentance as they're in sin, then it's probably not the right calling for him. It takes a lot. Not all elders, and this is a very important point, not all elders will be equally gifted in every area but every elder should possess the ability to carry out the requisite tasks. Only by divine calling can a man be gifted to the office of overseer, for only the Holy Spirit can make a man capable of what he is being called to do. So this is the divine calling, and then we have to deal with the external calling. If a man is divinely called to hold the office of overseer, it will be externally apparent to the church. The primary external qualifications that are identified by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 are almost all related to his morality and his character. He begins by stating that a man qualified must be above reproach. 
And the way I understand that is that he, he states the general above reproach and then he gives 11 characters of quality to identify what that means. And here they are. A qualified man is the husband of one wife. He is sober-minded. He is self-controlled. He is respectable. He is hospitable. He is not a drunkard. He is not violent but gentle. He is not quarrelsome. He is not a lover of money. He is a good manager of his household, and he is well thought of by outsiders. Additionally, Paul writes that a qualified man must not be a recent convert, or he will be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If a man is to be serially deficient in any of these qualifications, his ability to teach is undermined and is of little significance. So these character qualifications ought to be the chief concerns of examination when considering a man for the office of overseer. Now, I will tell you right now, I read those, and it is a fearful thing. It is a fearful, and, and it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to be able to look at those and say, for any man, I'm qualified. Right? It's a difficult thing. It requires something of true self-examination and any one of those I could point out instances and say there are times when I haven't been self-controlled or respectable, those sorts of things. I haven't been tempted by something like money or that I haven't been quarrelsome. That, that's a difficult thing to do. And yet, the, the issue here is, is a man ser- uh, serially deficient in any of these areas? And is that the mark of his life? If you think of that man by his name, that this deficiency is what you think of. That's the distinction being made. And so if a man is gifted by the Holy Spirit with the ability to teach, it should be evident by the people of God in addition to these qualifications. If he is preaching, teaching, or counseling, the congregation to whom he is ministering should recognize that he is useful for their spiritual good. Spurgeon believed that a man's gifts should be partly evaluated by a measure of conversion work going on under his efforts. As a man to be set apart to the ministry, his commission is without seals until souls are won by his instrumentality to the knowledge of Jesus. As a worker, he is to work on whether he succeeds or no, but as a minister, he cannot be sure of his vocation till results are apparent. So a way to think about this is if, if, a, if a, a congregation, if God's people are routinely exasperated as a result of a man's preaching, if they're confused by his teaching, if they find little assistance in his counseling, he may not be gifted by the Holy Spirit in the way that he has personally assumed. If a man's ministry is not acceptable to the people of God, he will be of little usefulness in his pastoral office. Now surely, any man who considers the task of pastoral ministry and the giftings required of the office have an acute sense of Paul's question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? To perfection, no one. But by the grace of God, there are those that God has called for the office. All right, we are gonna have to stop there because of time. We still have more in this paragraph in terms of the vote or the suffrage of the church for the installation of officers and the ordination of those officers. And then we'll move on to the other paragraphs. But we are out of time. I hope that was useful and we will pray. Lord, thank you so very much once again for this time. We th-
We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.